Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we critically analyze some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. This is the ninth episode in our mini-season all about the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Yeah, second to last episode. Yeah, the penultimate episode. This episode covers chapters 27, 28, and 29, and ooh, these are some chapters. Oh, these are some chapters indeed. Yeah, why, why don't you uh, give us a recap about what, what happens in these chapters? Ugh, pain and suffering is what happens. <laughs> okay, so the Kofi take Coriolanus and Sejanus to the lake, and Lucy Gray and Snow get into a bit of a disagreement about the price of the capital's control. Snow keeps being increasingly suspicious of Sejanus and sees him in the hob talking to a woman who has some weapons, and then he is a manipulative little monster. No, that's not my opinion. That is the summary of the facts. <laughs> Objective truth. Yes. And being a manipulative little monster, he tells Sejanus that he's like a brother to him and that he's there for him if he needs him, which then leads to Sejanus telling Snow the plan to break Lil out of the base and run away from the districts, which, of course, Snow records with the Jabberjays. Snow then follows Sejanus to the shed behind the hob. He's there meeting with Billy Tope and Spruce for their escape plans, and Lucy Gray and Mayfair show up. Mayfair kind of taunts them. Snow shoots her, and then Spruce shoots Billy Tope, and then they arrange their alibis. So then Snow convinces himself that he's all good and right. Meanwhile, then Sejanus is detained and he and Lil are executed. Snow has a little sob fest, but then gets over pretty quickly. And at Commander Hoff's birthday celebration, Lucy Gray is there performing. She tells Snow that she's going to run away because she thinks the mayor is going to kill her because of Mayfair's murder. So they arrange to meet at dawn at the hanging tree. But before he leaves the next morning, he finds out that he passed his officer's exam and is supposed to leave for officer school the next day. Whew, yeah. I knew I should never get attached to Sejanus Plinth. I knew it, and I did anyway, because he's too wonderful, and now my heart is broken. <laughs> yeah, he's literally too wonderful to live in the world of Panem. Right? Ugh! Oh my god. Like, I'm just... Ugh! Collins is such a great writer. <laughs> Mm-hmm. because i don't know she just gets me to feel things that like no other books really have i think i've cried from books maybe four times and three of those times were from books written by her <laughs> wow i don't know what it is she just creates wonderful characters and then murders them in front of your eyes oh <sighs> uh. yeah so I'm furious with Snow. Shocker. And I knew Sejanus was going to either die or be turned into like an A-box or like a lab experiment in the Citadel or something. And I knew that Snow was going to be the one to betray him and bring that whole situation about. Like I knew it from pretty early on. And I'm still so sad. (laughs) Because when I think about it, like 
he was always gonna die. Like, he, he always was gonna be extinguished because he was just too beautiful and passionate a person to ever be able to live in Pen M. The Capitol always would have had to kill him because he would always keep fighting and he would always put his life on the line and do whatever it took to try to like make the world a better place. So yeah, I mean, they were always going to extinguish that fire, but it's so tragic. Absolutely. I, I think I was maybe prepared because it was so clear that this was going to happen. So oh, for me, I was prepared, but it <laughs> shredded my heart anyway. <laughs> for me, Sejanus's death was really, really sad, but I think I, I felt more in the lead up to it. As things were getting more and more tense, and as it was clear that Sejanus was getting into trouble and that Snow was going to help that lead to Sejanus's death, I felt more and more anxiety and nerves as I was reading. I think that that was, for me, the most emotionally affecting aspect of these chapters was just the increasing tension. You know, we talk about how, you know, we take notes because we want to have things to talk about as we're discussing. And I kept finding myself stop analyzing what I was reading and just wanting to read through it and get through the narrative because I was so hooked into these feelings of worry for Sejanus. I took more notes because I just kept insulting snow in the margins of my book. (laughs) I mean, like, there's hardly any notes right around the death, but, like, before and after is just filled with me being quite livid. (laughs) Maybe a a photo of of some of those will be good on our Instagram. I mean, there's some expletives, so... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) But... It's just these deaths or this death was striking in a different way than some of the deaths from the original trilogy. In those, almost all of the deaths are, you know that they might be coming for obviously if they're happening in the Hunger Games, you know that they're coming. And outside of that, like with Finnick or Prim, you don't necessarily know. And it's just so sudden and jarring. And that's how it was with Mayfair and Billy Tope, right? It was like, oh, wow, they're just dead now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't expect that. But with Sejanus, it's like you have this whole buildup, whereas so many of the other characters, they don't have a last word. They don't have that solemn moment where you know what's going to happen instead of it just hitting the scene. So, yeah, it definitely felt different. Hmm. I suppose we should get our quote before I keep going on to my first impressions. (laughs) (laughs) So this quote is what Snow is thinking right after he kills Mayfair. He'd killed for the second time. If Bobbin's death had been self-defense, what was Mayfair's? Not premeditated murder. Not murder at all, really. Just another form of self-defense. The law might not see it that way, but he did. Mayfair may not have had a knife, but she had the power to get him hanged. Not to mention what she'd do to Lucy Gray and the others. Perhaps because he hadn't actually seen her die, or even had a good look at the body, he felt less emotional than when he'd killed Bobbin. Or perhaps the second killing was just easier than the first. At any rate, he knew that he'd shoot her again if he had to do it all over, and somehow that supported the rightness of his actions. Ooh, that's a perspective. Yeah, this idea of of his self-righteousness in this violent act that he took, really, kind of as you were saying, out of the blue. She was 
a threat, but she was just running away from this conversation, and he immediately goes for a gun and shoots at her. Yeah. And then is feels totally justified in that action afterwards, even regardless of the laws, which he elsewhere claims to uphold or to believe in. Oh, it doesn't apply to him. It's like, oh, she could tell them and then they'd think I was involved. Well, if you didn't want to be involved, why are you sneaking in? You know, just like, mm-hmm. let Satanus go do his thing if you don't want to be involved. You can't like try to control it and then say, I have nothing to do with this. Like, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's almost like Snow's trying to control everything is a theme throughout this. And we see here that it ultimately leads to really awful conclusions, especially for those around him. Yeah, it's also almost like he's mainly just looking out for himself and what's going to negatively impact him and doesn't really care how it impacts others. Yeah, it is almost like that. It's very, very close to being that. Actually, it might just just be that. That's just what it is. Yeah, yeah, I think so. The quote is just written so well. Mm. And, and it is so funny coming a few chapters after the, like, no rationalization. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Like, he is just so hypocritical and he doesn't see it. But it's really interesting, you know, that it, it puts in some ideas of the potential difference of, of seeing someone's face, seeing their body after versus not looking and Mm. really being hit with what you've done versus I don't have to look at it and so I won't but also brings into the question like does that have an impact or is it I've already done this and I've already been able to just move past it and say it was okay for me to do it so it's okay for me to do it again absolutely and and if you want to move into our first impressions that kind of leads into one of mine which is at Sejanus's execution, Snow refuses to look. Mm. He refuses to watch the death that he is party to. He caused and, it. Yeah. And as he looks away, he sees Lucy Gray, tears streaming down her face, staring at Sejanus, being present and watching and witnessing what is happening to someone that she knows in a way that Snow doesn't have the strength to do. I was too distressed from what was happening to, like, pick up on that. Mm. (laughs) But that is a really beautiful thing to notice, that Snow just ignores and justifies the things that he doesn't want to deal with. Lucy Gray isn't going to do that. She values Sejanus, and she's going to be there for him, Mm. even if it's painful. And she's she cares about him, so she cares about seeing the last moment he's alive yeah whereas snow cares about himself and what he's experiencing absolutely and and it's just the audacity of snow calling sejanus like his brother Uh. in particular after his death i think ever frankly in particular Mm -hmm. when he's using it to manipulate the information out of sejanus but after he makes decisions that lead to sejanus's death telling people that he was like his brother, is just audacious. Although maybe he is. I mean, maybe Snow would have treated his own brother the same way, you know? He likely would have, but... At least he would have valued him more because he was a Snow. (laughs) Exactly, and Snow lands on top. Yeah, it's... Ugh, I... 
<laughs> cannot stand him. Well, what about you? We're, we're, we're still on our first impression. So what were some of the other ones that you were thinking of? Yeah, so I think it's kind of interesting, actually, that like, I'm so f- furious at Snow and I, I loathe him. At the same time, like, I can recognize that Collins is doing such a good job at, like, keeping the complexity of his character, even as he turns into, like, a full-fledged monster. Because, you know, he does wake up in the middle of the night with a nightmare about Sejanus being killed by the snake mutts. And he does Mm. have that moment of sobbing after the execution, you know, that was about Sejanus and ma and tigress and of course himself and he even could have pinned the murders on sejanus because Mm. he was already dead but he didn't you know he said that doesn't sound like him he never wanted to hurt anyone and so she keeps the complexity even though he is atrocious but he doesn't just go flat after he makes those decisions You're so right. Yeah. Because that's the important thing. It's like he has the humanity, but he chooses to not lean into the guilt. He chooses to lean away. And that's what makes a difference for his character. Yeah. He, He does seem to have some sort of real affection. You might even say love for Sejanus. He certainly does for people like Tigris and Lucy Gray. It just pales in comparison to the love he has for himself. I don't know for Sejanus, though. I think he has appreciation for Sejanus. And maybe Mm. some affection. I don't know. Maybe maybe he does, and I'm just too angry at him to be able (laughs) (laughs) to see it. But another thing for the first impressions that I, I thought was just wonderful writing was when Snow is dressing for the execution. It says... His fingers were so stiff he could hardly manipulate the uniform buttons, each one carrying the impression of the capital seal on its silver face. And I just loved that imagery because it's him feeling shock and some measure of guilt, but he's like slowly covering it and he's slowly Mm. covering himself in this military uniform and letting like every additional button with the capital seal envelope him. And it's just like, this is the moment that he really becomes the President Snow that we know. Because Mm. he could have talked to the commander and said, oh, it was a bad joke. Or we wanted to make sure that this Jabberjay worked because it was acting weird. Or, you know, he could have tried to break Sejanus out. He still Mm. had access to his money. He could have tried to bribe the guards. Or, you know, he still had access to the Morphling. He could have tried to carry out the plan like he knew about the fence. Like, there's things that he could have tried to do. He doesn't do anything. And the feelings that he does feel he covers and he just puts on the garment of the capital and and there's no going back yeah the visuals of that moment really struck me as well and and i think the aspect of them being silver buttons also it Mm. it reminded me of you know like someone being silver tongued it, it being a kind of lying or manipulative type of color as well Mm. and expensive yeah absolutely so good yeah did you have any other first impressions i did yeah one was the further hypocrisy of snow within these three chapters as well as outside of them he continually talks about how 
those who live outside the capital are not living like humans, mm. right? They are living in inhuman conditions. They're almost like animals. And as- even living outside the districts would make you even further like animals. And he scoffs at the idea of it continually until he believes that he is up for execution. Mm-hmm. And then going with Lucy Gray into the north, away out of the districts, is a way for him to get his freedom. And there he is losing what he calls the oppressive expectations of society. <laughs> right. Oh my god. For one, oh yeah, you're oppressed. But for two, <laughs> he has no self-criticism of, oh, this is what they mean when they talk about freedom. And he finally sees it for himself once his life is on the line and he is in no way cognizant of how that would possibly be the case for these other people who are trying to do the exact same thing only most of them were not fleeing crimes yeah exactly and he's just so hypocritical this is the thing that he gave up sejanus for Mm. that was all sejanus wanted was to get away i mean he wanted to bring down everything because he's a great person but (laughs) he was like i just need to get away and then maybe i can think straighter and i can figure out a way to help the districts Mm. and he just he couldn't give that to him he would not allow it and sejanus's actions were wrong to him they were treasonous they were siding with the districts and not the capital and as soon as, oh, I might get in trouble for something that I actually did, <laughs> I should have this beautiful life away from all of these problems and freedom. And this would be such a wonderful way to live. And it's just so ironic in such a tragic way because yeah. he gives himself all the allowances while judging and effectively killing Sujanus for it. Yeah. And my last impression that I was thinking about, which kind of leads to touch points as well, is just how delusional he gets so that he can live with himself Mm. and not only live with himself, but believe that he's actually right. Like we were talking about killing Mayfair was self-defense and the right thing to do. And he said several different times he had no choice to kill Mm. or to record Sejanus. Like, of course you had a choice. Even with Bobbin, if the choice is dying or killing, you still have that choice to make. He just absolves himself by saying, oh, I don't have a choice. There's nothing else I could do. And it's just the height of self-deception, I think, is when he's thinking they would hang him, but she would be there knowing he was still a genuinely good person, not a monster who cheated or betrayed his best friend, but someone who'd really tried to be noble in impossible circumstances. Okay, Snow, sure, yeah, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) It's just... The delusion is mind-boggling, and it kind of leads me to touch points because I've actually seen things like this. Hmm. I've seen someone, we had a very close friendship and somebody that I trusted and who turned out to be a bit of a manipulative monster (laughs) themselves, and, you know, somehow they could still always do some mental gymnastics to be able to convince themselves and believe that they weren't manipulative, Hmm. that they weren't wronging people, they weren't being duplicitous. I've seen that and it's disturbing and staggering because 
I don't understand how you could be so oblivious to your own interiority and your own actions at the same time. It's weird. It's like they're so good at manipulating others and they're also good at manipulating themselves. Yeah. It's sad in a way because they believe they're someone they're not. Mm. But it's it's also just tragic because they hurt so many others because of it. And if they could just admit and repent, maybe they could be that person that they're trying to convince themselves that they are. Yeah. To see the outside themselves for, for one second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what about you? What are your touch points? Yeah, one of my touch points was about the debate that Lucy Gray and Snow have by the lake. Coriolanus mentions how he thinks that without the capital, people would no longer be around, that people would have died off because the chaos would have engulfed them. And the example he uses is the state of Panem and how it has lost so much compared to North America of their past. And after thinking about this for a while, it was kind of on my mind for a bit. I was trying to think, you know, what is Collins trying to say here? And it made me start thinking about how the opposite is true. From what I understand, the world of Panem was destroyed through nuclear bombings and rising sea levels, which I imagine is from climate change. So <laughs> yeah. these are man, these are human created disasters. These Maybe man things... created disasters. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. One of the times it might be actually accurate. Uh, <laughs> but these are things that didn't come from the chaos of nature. They came from institutional decisions mm-hmm. that were made through conflicts over power and resources and things like that and so he is using this view of what control does ahistorically in a way that is actually opposite of what history could really teach them oh he didn't learn the correct history (laughs) i'm shocked considering that history teacher he had Oh, don't get me started. You'd think the capital would really want to give well-rounded, multiple perspectives. Yeah. That does sound like the capital all over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that is interesting. And just another way that Snow's thinking is completely off. Yeah, and and then we see in these chapters as well an example of when authority figures use their mechanisms for control in ways that are not about controlling chaos, they are selfish and about their own power. And that is the mayor going after Lucy Gray, claiming that she was the murderer of Mayfair, even though she wasn't. And regardless of any evidence, she was presumed guilty. And that's something that we certainly see Mm -hmm. in our society where many people, particularly people of color, are assumed to be guilty by those with authority. And that leads to oppressive systems in which the authority figures and the authority systems treat them as they're guilty, even if they are not. Absolutely. And and even with him driving by with his car, like there was just like such a policing mm. sort of feel to it. And I loved that when Lucy Gray was talking about Mayfair, somehow must have convinced her dad to pull her name from the reaping. And mm. she said that we're outsiders here, so it's easy to lie about us which I thought was such a great line and so unfortunately true to our society. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have any other touch points? 
So one is that when Snow is upset about their family manor being sold and his grandma's roses being removed, he turns his anger towards Sejanus and Mm. wants to confront him about the plan of escape. And the book says, he hoped it would come to blows. Someone should pay for the indignities of the Snow family and who better than a plinth? To me, this is just so like white supremacists who are mm. living in poverty that it's, it, you don't blame the system. They don't blame the people who have the wealth and power and are creating it to be that way. No, they attack whatever other is there. They attack basically anyone who isn't white. You know, they're the enemy and mm. they want to take it out on them when the plinths didn't cause this. The capital is deciding to put these taxes on them. They're not mad that this is happening and they don't actually have any income and there aren't loans or something available to them. Like, he wouldn't even consider that route. Maybe they could rent part of it out, but like, no, of course, that would tarnish their status. Mm -hmm. And... It's not about their own actions. It's not about the system and inequality that's happened. It's, I'm going to be mad at Sejanus. I hope this comes to blows because I want to take out my anger over what's happening to my family on this person who had nothing to do with any of that. That's so true. And that's that's true historically as well. It reminds me, now that you bring it up, of the post-Civil War increase in racism against black now formerly enslaved people by poor whites and Mm. now that there was citizenship and rights given to formerly enslaved people they felt more like their status was yeah itself not due to these oppressive economic systems that put them down and left them in poverty but due to these other people who they now saw as trying to take away things from their lives and their concepts of their identity and their status. I'm personally not an expert on this topic, and there's a lot more context there. This is actually a pretty contentiously debated aspect of history, but many historians have made compelling arguments that this rise of racism is uh, definitely in part due to experiences of the low-income whites of the South. Well, that's the thing. This attitude, we should have this. Mm. And we're not getting it. Whose fault is it? Yeah. And not like, let's actually look at whose fault it is. Let's look at other people who don't have a lot of power. Or, I mean, in this case, through war profiteering, the plants were able to get a lot of wealth. And I, I see that too in modern day mm. America, where it's, we should be able to be wealthy and have high incomes and now oh these asian immigrants are coming in and now they're getting a lot of wealth and you know like there's all sorts of attitudes i mean not just asian immigrants it could be any immigrants where if they succeed then it's like that's somehow taking away from me and what i should have totally (sighs) snow is just the perfect example Yes. (laughs) Oh, I also loved slash hated. Like, I mean, we definitely have seen some patriarchy come out in him, especially in Mm. relation to Lucy Gray. 
Well, and also in him letting Tigress just do everything for him. You know, she helps him with his clothes. She works really hard hours and still has to come home and cook for him, apparently. Mm. But I I love how there was just a line that brought that out even more, especially as we've talked about toxic masculinity and and the military specifically when he's thinking about they might kill him if Mm. they trace the murders to him. He said, there was nothing to do but accept his death like a man, like a soldier, like a snow. And I was just like, oh, that's that's just perfect. Yes. <laughs> like, in the disgusting way that it is. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the, the last touch point that I had was just when Commander Hoff pulls Corlanus into his office and he mentioned the, the murders of the mayor's daughter and... Then he's like flipping through some papers and decides not to even bother finding Billy Tope's mm. name. And that was just making me kind of think about the importance of naming those who are murdered and how that's one of, you know, many moving elements that the Black Lives Matter movement has just brought out to the surface. This practice of, of saying the names of, of the people who have been murdered. Yeah. And just how he doesn't even care to, like, find the paper. Like, it doesn't, means nothing to him. And even Mayfair, he Mm. doesn't even use her name. It's the mayor's daughter. Mm. Yeah, I just thought that was really striking. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I had one last touch point I wanted to talk about as well. And if this was our, our normal podcast style, this might be what we call there a missed opportunity. Okay, go for it. Because we see in this chapter another kind of one-off comment about a character being queer, where Barbazur is having some sort of relationship with, with another woman. Mm-hmm. And great, representation is, is wonderful. But I think that there's a missed opportunity here because Collins, again, fails to directly address how queerness is treated, especially in oppressive regimes. Mm -hmm. In particular, by not having Snow, who's our POV character, make any comment whatsoever, it implies that in Panem, queer relationships are are normalized. And if Panem is supposed to be a dystopic version of the excesses and, and oppressive nature of our society, I think that there would certainly also be an element of that within sexual politics. And so I think, yeah, there could have been something interesting there. Another one of Snow's just ignorant and fascistic asides of, I didn't want to upset the Covey, but, you know, at a time when we need more children, people are wasting their whatever. You know, like all these these awful things of, of why people have, have been discriminatory against people who do not fall within the cishet status. I just, I think that they're... they're should and could have been something more there that that I wish Collins had included. Yeah, I was thinking about that a bit too. And, and I was kind of wondering, I was like, is part of why these things are mentioned and he doesn't bat an eye at it because somehow that has entered mainstream society, like over time, as we've seen with Gen Z now, how way more progressive in general mm. Gen Z is than even our millennial generation when it comes to queerness. I didn't know if it was part of it, like, if this is 200 whatever years in the future, if that part of society kind of did get normalized. And 
obviously, as we've seen, even in some communities where queerness is accepted, that does not mean that it's progressive in all of the ways. That doesn't mean that racism is mm. gone. Obviously, it's not. Or misogyny and classism and all these things still exist. And so I didn't know if that was a piece of it especially when we we see the capital culture prioritize fashion and all of these different things that that fall outside the norm of what today would be considered like okay for how men to dress mm. or you know things like that and so i didn't know if yeah part of it was just a piece of that or if yeah she just wanted to mention it but like wasn't really touching the issue yeah but then you have someone like Sejanus and if you do read him as queer which I do he never says it but then you also know like his father Strabo is so domineering mm -hmm. in a way and so I yeah just kind of wonder if that would be a piece of it or you know yeah I'm just not really sure but yeah it's an important important thing to think about and talk mm -hmm. about I thought similar ideas of of maybe that's the case and 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 frankly just straight representation matters or not straight representation there's plenty of that <laughs> <laughs> representation matters <laughs> oh dear that sounds like a hashtag that snow would use right? <laughs> well we should probably go though into our back to the future segment so I was thinking that it was interesting when Billy Tope wanted the Covey to go north because he thinks that there are people up there. And that just kind of brought me back to Gail, you know, starting from the beginning of the series, talking about running away mm. from District 12. Then also Katniss heard of rumors of District 13 having survived the war from Bonnie and Twelve, who were at the lake when when she heard about mm. that. And, you know, Katniss tried to gather her loved ones to escape. So I just, yeah, had a little flashback to people who have been oppressed and then these rumors of something else somewhere else and finding hope in that and potentially putting everything on the line to try to find a place that isn't oppressive. Yeah, I also thought about this idea of running away and, and saw the discussions between Lucy Gray and Snow in relation to those between Gail and Katniss. And it, it made me realize that one of the reasons that they stayed is because neither of them is actually a rebel the same way Gail is. Lucy Gray wants her freedom. She doesn't want to rebel against the Capitol, even if sometimes wanting her freedom can be rebellious. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about staying to fight that compels her and certainly doesn't compel Snow. And it also made me start wondering if Gail obviously reacts badly when it's mentioned that PETA would also be running with them. <laughs> and... If in some alternate dimension, Billy Tope wasn't killed and they were still going to go with this caravan and that's what Snow needed to do to survive, how would he feel about doing so if Billy Tope was also involved? <laughs> that's true. Yeah, another one that I saw was when the Mockingjays are being captured and they they weren't being actually captured in the cages they put out so then they start using these nets that are like nearly invisible mm. and that just kind of brought rue to mind mm. because not only was rue one of the first 
people to interact with the Mockingjays in the series. But Katniss also had this like image of her that she came back to more than once in the trilogy of like Rue looking like she was about to take flight and yeah, associating her with those Mockingjays. And then Rue died in the arena because she was caught in a net trap that Marvel had set. Mm. And yeah, just, I don't know. It kind of gave me this Rue feeling that's really interesting. I didn't I didn't think about that. That's great. I kind of got a, a similar feeling, but not for Rue, for Katniss. Mm. When Lucy Gray follows Snow into the shed and sees them in a dangerous situation and immediately starts performing, talking about how mm. she is Billy Tope's girl and, and Snow is Barbazur's partner and, and all these things like that. I think it reminded me just of Katniss's sensing of when things are dangerous and her ability to turn on the performances of her and Peeta in particular in those moments. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I didn't think about that, but Katniss was very good at that. I mean, and not just Katniss, Katniss, Peeta, and Hamish, like they were all just excellent at yeah. that, which is something I really admired about them. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. The last one that I have is when Snow was like thinking about the rebels like having this secret access to the base and it said that it frightened and infuriated him this breaking of the contract this invitation to chaos and all that could follow. Didn't these people understand that the whole system could collapse without the capital's control? It just really reminded me of the conversation that he has with Katniss at the beginning of Mm. Catching Fire. And so I, I went back and looked that up and he says that like, whatever problems anyone may have with the Capitol, believe me when I say that if it released its grip on the districts, even for a short time, the entire system would collapse. And, you know, she says it must be very fragile if a handful of berries could bring it down. And he says it is fragile, but not in the way you suppose. And Mm. so I just I thought it was really interesting that really his conversations with Dr. Gall have shaped his thinking about the capital and the necessity of control in a way that he does keep for the rest of his life. Yeah. He had plenty of chances to change that perspective, but he still believed it to to the end. Yeah, a really smart connection. Oh, thanks. Uh, what about you? Do you have any other Back to the Future elements? One one quick one is just we see the Katniss potatoes. <laughs> yeah, of course. Because <laughs> we have to, I guess. Well, they grow there. If they're at the lake, then it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. But I was like, I'm pretty sure that Snow would rather call them swamp potatoes than Katniss. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's probably what he was calling Katniss in his mind the whole time. That swamp potato. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. But why don't we head into our final section of rumination, since there's not going to be much we're going to be ruminating on next week. Or there's going to be too much we're ruminating on. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I was just thinking a lot about this idea of trust, because Hmm. Lucy Gray said that trust is more important than love. I thought that was a very interesting idea and and so much in in these three chapters we see trust that is given and trust that is broken Mm. and trust that isn't necessarily broken because the betrayal is kept secret yeah so yeah I, i was just thinking a lot about that i wonder if you can love without trust 
And and that would go back to did Snow love Sejanus? Hmm. Because he didn't trust him, even when he could have. I mean, he lied to him, but it, he was never going to do anything against him. And he was never going to harm anyone. And and I think Sejanus loved Snow, so he chose to trust him, even though it was to his own death. Hmm. And Lucy Gray, is it's interesting because she says that she trusts Snow, but she never says that she loves him. Hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. I was just wondering how those things interact. I think that you can probably have the trust without the love, but I don't think it can go the other way. That's so interesting. Because don't you have to put some trust in them, even if you're deceived? Hmm. It's almost like you have to be open to that that hurt, or I don't know if you love them. Yeah, and honestly, right now I'm just compelled by the idea of trusting without love and what a relationship might look like for Lucy Gray if she trusts without love. Mm. Whether she is so used to unhealthy and toxic relationships like she clearly had with Billy Tope that she could make do with a relationship where she gives so much of herself to someone she doesn't love if she trusts them. Oh, and now that's making me think of like, what is trust without love? Well, maybe that's contract. Ooh, okay. Yeah, and yeah. That's the Panem that Snow wants. Hmm. But Sejanus loved Panem. Like, he loved it enough to want it to be better. Whereas Snow just wanted it to stay the same. And everyone to know the rules and abide by the rules. I mean, except him, of course. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think Sejanus loved the idea of justice and the idea of making the world a better place and so he put his trust in that Hmm. even though he knew like he said yeah i know a lot of things have to go right for this plan to work but even if they don't they'll arrest me but they would do that later anyway yeah he trusted in the idea enough and loved it enough to sacrifice his life for it huh yeah that's really profound (laughs) i am ruminating on Something that you said earlier in the episode, when you're bringing up Snow's belief that he had no choice to do the things that he did. This also, I think, is really interesting in contrast with Sejanus as well, because Sejanus is framed as making the choice to not go along with the capital. So Snow is seeing Sejanus as making a choice for rebellion, but seeing himself as having no choice but to try to dissuade him or betray him once he makes that decision. And it's so, so telling. As you're discussing earlier, when you lose perspective on your own accountability for the choices you make, but you still make those choices off of the decisions of others that you are condemning. Yeah, for Snow, it's judging Sejanus for things that he does himself and also judging Sejanus for things that actually make Sejanus wonderful and yeah it's he's so delusional and hypocritical and oblivious to it all it's not that he can't see it he's a smart person we've seen that but he doesn't want to see it oh these dangerous situations you've gotten me into but Mm -hmm. like look at what he gets Sejanus into just because he wants something better for himself whereas like Sejanus didn't purposefully get Corlanus into 
any dangerous situation. He put himself in dangerous situations. And the only reason they were even associated was because Coriolanus, from the beginning, instead of bullying him, decided to just do nothing. Mm -hmm. But he did that because it was a strategic choice. And because of that, he got associated with Sejanus. So he put himself in the situation, but he blames Sejanus for it. And then he, you know, doesn't see that at all. Yeah. Not to mention that as Mayfair runs away, Snow is the only person who grabs a gun to shoot her. No, Spruce tried to. And Billy oh, told oh, That's true. That's no. true. I should say Sejanus doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that was the real shock of the book. <laughs> Yeah, Snow is maybe not the what he considers the instigator of this situation in the same way Sejanus is, but he is the one who makes a decision to solve things violently and in irrevocable ways. Yeah. And if Sejanus hadn't been executed because of the other thing that Snow did to him, it's very likely that they would have gotten in trouble for that instead. I love... I just... When they're talking with some of the other people at the base about the the two people who were killed, and Smiley said that, like, oh, they were killed by one of their own, and Zanus was like, how do they know that? And Coriolanus is thinking, shut up. (laughs) Knowing Sejanus, he could be one step away from confessing to crime he didn't even commit. (laughs) And I was just like, that is so true. Yeah, like he would do that he's so concerned that somebody is going to get framed for this that like didn't Mm -hmm. do it and like he he would absolutely do it like we were saying before he would meet anyone at the hanging tree he doesn't know lil but he risked his life for her and yeah he he would always make that choice yeah absolutely but yeah i guess that should probably wrap up our episode because next week we will be talking about that last chapter and the epilogue (gasps) it's the end We've made it. A part of me already feels like it's the end because the Janice is gone. <laughs> now but it's I, just peripheral characters that we, we have to find no, out what happened to. I, I do really want to find out with, with Lucy Gray, but mm. ugh, Snow just needs to leave. I'm glad that I don't have to deal with him for very much longer. <laughs> yeah, so that will be next week. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines. You can also join our wonderful patrons over at patreon.com, where you can also still participate in our polls and book club discussions and other kinds of really great conversations we're having about the book. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!